1: Welcome back, everyone, to the 34th episode of the Take the Points podcast, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm your co-host, Tate Seth, joined as always by Arjun Menon. Coming off another good weekend of football, Arjun, how'd it go for you?
0: Yeah, it was a great weekend of football, um, a lot of fun games. Had probably the best like slate of games in the 4 p.m. slate with uh, Bengals Chiefs, um, Chargers, Raiders, and Dolphins 49ers, so pretty good weekend of football. And then also um, pretty just good week for me. Um, had Mina Kimes shout me out on her podcast. So that's always fun to see, you know, your work get recognized by people like that. And, you know, just excited to be here again talking ball.
1: Yeah, I know that was that was super cool. Um, you know, it's it's always cool to, you know, get shout out by like someone of Mina's caliber and it kind of shows that you're doing good stuff. So you know, we're going to start here with reviewing some some games from this past week. And I want to start with Jets Vikings. Um give me some of your initial thoughts from kind of going through this game when when you saw it playing out and then going back and looking at it.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people kind of said uh the Jets were the better team and like um you know the the Jets only lost because they kicked five field goals. Like I think like if you go back and review this game, like I do think the Vikings were the better team and like I think The Jets just shot themselves in the foot way too often. Like they were down at halftime by double digits for a reason. Um, And, you know, I think the big thing for them is they couldn't really like stop um, Dalvin Cook initially. Like he broke off a couple big gains. And that's the thing with the Jets. Like I think if you put them in like neutral game situations where you're not really forcing Mike White to throw as often, they're a pretty good team, especially because their defense can lock it down. But when Mike White was forced into all of these expected dropback situations, ended up averaging negative 0.07 EPA per play. And, you know, had like kind of a pedestrian game. Um, a lot of his production did come when trailing and like he made some great throws, mind you. Like the fourth down throw was was pretty cool to see. Um, but I think we kind of just saw the limitations of the Jets, even with Mike White, who at this point isn't is an upgrade over Zach Wilson, but at his peak is still like maybe like 0.6, 0.7 Kirk's.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Robbie Greer, um, you know, at at Greer NFL on Twitter has put some work out on this before, but backup quarterbacks, when they come in, they're usually uh, undervalued by the public and by the betting market. Like they end up covering the spread 53, 54% of the time. Uh, Because like, you know, people think that there's going to be a bigger drop off between a starting quarterback and a backup quarterback. So we kind of saw that in Mike White's first game, where, you know, the Jets were playing against a Bears team that basically had no one. uh, And like, they were only, you know, seven point favorites and covered very easily. Then what happens is everyone overcorrects too much in the other direction, and starts to think that these backup quarterback might be the long term answer for this team. And so that's what we kind of saw in this game where, you know, Mike White didn't play awful. Like he didn't get down to Zach number numbers, but he still didn't play great. And it took him, you know, until the second half to really get going in this game. But this was, you know, very winnable for the Jets. They had a lot of their chances there. And like the problem with me about it was Garrett Wilson is clearly the best receiver on your team. And, you know, he's I think he's working himself into top 20 wide receiver in the NFL right now, if if he's not already there already. So I don't, I didn't think Braxton Berrios should have been the go-to target on the potential game-winning touchdown pass. And I think like if they went for Wilson or if they used Wilson as more of a decoy and went to another more sure-handed receiver that was like a starting caliber receiver, not Berrios, they could have actually won this game.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, I did. Okay. So we're, we're still talking about the game, but I did want to kind of like bring up the point about how you said, like. The betting markets kind of drop off. Like they see it, they see quarterbacks changing as too much of a drop off, and so you know Seth Walder, who works for ESPN, put out his um annual analytics survey, and I, there was a couple of quotes that kind of stood out to me. So I'm going to read them off. Well, one NFC staffer said the value that a quarterback contributes to a game or contributes to a game is so heavily dependent on the other 21 players on the field. Another someone's another uh, quarterback voter said. You have the most information on quarterback, but it's hard to isolate the skill of the quarterback outside of the system he's operating in. Uh, also noting that the hit rate on quarterbacks is lower than other positions as well. I'm assuming they are referring to the draft. So like the Mike White situation, you. I think we kind of, what well, we didn't really learn much about Mike White. I think we just learned how bad Zach Wilson is, mm. that we saw Mike White, who I think objectively we can say isn't that great of a quarterback, but he is better than Zach Wilson because Everything else has kind of stayed the same. They've kind of played similar competition and Mike White is outproducing him. But I'm curious to hear like your thoughts about like, first of all, I'm sure you read the survey and like, is, do you think like that kind of like thing is applicable in this situation to the Jets? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I I do think so because we like one of the reasons why. Um, I think both of us, but me in particular, like the Jets coming into the season was on paper. Their supporting cast on offense, especially, looked really good, and we've seen that it's really hard for a quarterback to develop uh, in you know today's NFL where they don't have a good supporting cast around them. You need that offensive line to, you know, make sure you're pressured less often so you can develop a lot of the second read stuff that, you know, makes quarterbacks so special. And then you also need receivers to, you know, be able to trust. And, and I think, you know, the jets have both of those things, which will allow Mike white to have, you know, when he has these types of games, like it won't be, awful because like his, you know, maybe like 25th percentile outcome is a lot higher than Zach Wilson's, but maybe it'll happen a decent amount often where, you know, the supporting cast can kind of make up for it, but it still leads to slightly negative EPA per play um, because of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And uh, we kind of had this conversation on Twitter with our friend, Sam Hoppin, but like the way, if you're going to try to isolate quarterback play, you can't, it's tough to really do it with EPA. Um, I know you kind of done some work with that, so I'm not going to like share any of your secrets, like of kind of just isolating QB, um, like how much value they add. But like there are there have been some public ways to kind of like evaluate QBs on their own QB decision making. Me and our friend Judah tried to do something like that with charting data over the summer. Um, I I mean I think the process which we followed was correct. It was directionally correct, but using charting data over tracking data, which people like Matthew Rayers, who SFU grad works for Zeus and then also Brian Burke, who wrote a paper for Sloan. If you're gonna use tracking data, I think that's the way to go. And you can really try to isolate QB decision making that way. So there are ways to kind of like isolate it. Obviously the big thing is like how stable is this metric? Like does it translate from college to the pros? Those type of questions are what we should be asking um eventually, like when we if you're building the metrics and like that's kind of like the way I think you evaluate like the validity of the metric. But it, it's a pretty interesting co- topic. I just did want to talk about it given that seth walder released a survey today at the time of recording
1: yeah and i mean if, even if you look at the other side of the ball here with kirk cousins you can see that his margin for error right now is greater than it's ever been with the vikings like kirk didn't play well in this game at all um you know between inviting a lot of pressure onto himself um missing you know a lot of a lot of throws Uh, He had a 0.02 EPA per play, negative 2.3% completion percentage over expected. But when you have Justin Jefferson, TJ Hawkinson, and Adam Thielen as your top three receiving options, it can do a lot for, you know, if you're missing throws that Kirk usually didn't have the luxury of. And so in this game, you know, the play that really stood out to me in particular was when pressure was coming on him, he kind of just chucked it deep to Jalen Rieger in double coverage, <laughs> uh, under threw it by about five yards and Justin Jefferson was wide open in the middle of the field, which would have been an easy 20, 25 yard gain. But, you know, since he underthrew it and, you know, I think if he hit Rieger on the money, it would have been picked, but Rieger was able to come back to it, catch the ball and, you know, have this like huge explosive gain for the Vikings early in this game and Kirk has played well in the first and second quarter, um, you know, every every game this year about, but then the third quarter, for some reason he just melts down. Yeah. And like again, he had a negative EPA in this game. He's had a negative EPA in basically every single third quarter this season. But the Vikings used to not be able to support that. And they would all you know give up the lead or you know start to like fall apart and unravel. This year, I think because of Kevin O'Connell's adjustments and just like the receiving options that they have and a defense that tends to make big plays in the fourth quarter, they can overcome some of Kirk's third quarter meltdowns and and still do well. And that's what they've been doing. And then Kirk makes some big time throws in the fourth quarter to close out games.
0: Yeah, the the point you made. So like it's a great point because the Vikings, like like you said, have not been that great in the third quarter. Kirk hasn't been that well himself in the third quarter, but they still find ways to kind of close out these games. And it's like I think it is a reflection on coaching in in part that they do suck in the third. Or I, I shouldn't say suck; they're not that great in the third quarter. Part of that is coaching, but it's also coaching that they're able to win all of these one score games. Like the quarterback can only take you so far. There is game management, play calling, things that you know all tie into there. Um. So you know that's a great point about Kirk Cousins and. Vikings are rolling, but two and a half point dogs to the Lions on the road kind of just shows you what the betting markets think of them. um and it's a it's a pretty fu- funny conundrum for a lot of Vikings fans where this is probably the best season that they've been a part of
1: mm-hmm. yeah, it's it is interesting, you know, the according to the betting market ratings on unpredictable. Uh, .com the Vikings are 0.5 points better than a uh neutral team or an average team on a neutral site which is 11th best in the NFL um you know one behind the Cleveland Browns one ahead of the New England Patriots so you know you can kind of see like what the the betting market thinks of them but again like you know i think they're they they can kind of ride these like one score games the rest of the way but every fan base or organization will talk themselves into you know the their team doing something in particular that helps them win one score games. We saw this with the Raiders last year where they they were talking about, you know, how like Derek Carr would make some throws or maybe Max Crosby would take over in the fourth quarter. That's why they were winning one score games, but it was really just variance. And that's what, you know, this is probably going to be for the Vikings. It might not regress this season. Like they might be able to keep riding it for the rest of the season, but eventually it will regress next year. But like for now, like if you're the Vikings, you're probably, you know, locked into the two seed, maybe even the one seed if the Eagles were to slip up along the way somewhere and you can take advantage of two of their losses or something. So you have to be really good about, like, the spot you're in because you're you're going to, like, face a pretty easy team in the first round of the playoffs. And, like, this could be, like, a you know, a season where you take advantage of a weak NFC and kind of ride that to maybe the, the Super Bowl.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. The Vikings are are going to be a fun team to, to watch going forward. I think we've spoken enough about Kirk Cousins and the next coming of Kirk Cousins with Mike White. Um, Let's move on to Titans-Eagles, which, you know, I don't think it was that great of a game, but there were a lot of things that came out of it. We're recording on Tuesday. The big news, John Robinson, GM for the Tennessee Titans, got fired. Why?
1: <laughs> I think A.J. Brown was the straw that broke the camel's back for the Titans' ownership. I think maybe ownership was against the A.J. Brown trade. Maybe Mike Vrabel was against the A.J. Brown trade. and like, you know, I think Vrabel deserves uh, to be higher on the totem pole than Robinson in the Titans' organization. Robinson's done well as a drafter. Um, Our friend Brad Spielberger had him as 12th uh, best GM in the league. You know, I, I think he's done pretty well overall as a gm but he wasn't an elite gm and Vrabel is an elite head coach yeah. so you know I, aj brown has um basically outperformed the entire titans receiver core this year and like robinson messed up this all of this offseason trading away brown you know they haven't been able to find a tackle even though they've drafted well at that position they didn't resign yeah. any of those they you know Chose Derrick Henry, gave him a big contract, which you had to, and gave Ryan Tannehill a big contract, which you have to, but they just ran out of money at the end of the day. And like not being able to pay a talent like Brown, I think, and then seeing him dunk on the uh, his defensive backs over and over in this game was like kind of what sent it for ownership to, to go through with firing him.
0: Yeah, and here's the thing, and I'm going to go back to Seth Walder's article. The Titans, I think we can objectively say, are probably the team that uses analytics the least, mm-hmm. just simply because of the fact that we kind of know they only have one analytics staffer, and we don't really know what he does. Like there are teams where we know who works for the teams, like we have friends who work for teams, and like we don't really know what goes on in the Titans building. We don't even know if they like you know use analytics at all. And you know, any like true analytics like stat, um, non-tracking data would have told you AJ Brown is a good receiver, showed up very highly in yards per out run. Even if you adjust for personnel, like our friend Zach Jopkin did when he was with PFF, he sh- he still showed up in like the top ten, right? Mm-hmm. If you use tracking data, I'm sure he showed up in a top top five, top ten. If you used a model that's like directionally correct, uh, per ESPN's uh, tracking or receiver rankings built on tracking data built by like Brian Burke, if you use 2019 through 2021, AJ Brown had the second highest receiver score of any receiver in the league, and Again, you think about he got traded to the Eagles, who gave up a first-round pick, and was willing to pay twenty-five million dollars a year for. I think that should have been some signal to the Titans that hey, maybe AJ Brown is like he, we might have to overpay, but maybe he will still provide surplus value because mm-hmm. at this point, AJ Brown is providing surplus value on a first round and twenty-five million per year, mm-hmm. which is very few receivers can do that. So, you know, I agree with you that if the titans had to choose between rabel and robinson you go with the coach who ultimately has a, more of an impact over team performance and again like i don't know what the titans were looking at to think that brown was only worth 16 million or maybe that's all they could afford but i'm pretty sure if you used any analytics type metric aj brown would have showed up very highly in it and again like the eagles giving him all that money a, a Again, I would say the smartest, if not one of the smartest teams in the NFL, making that trade for him should have been a signal to the Titans that, you know, we should have kept him.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I know. I definitely agree. And like, just looking at Robinson from a whole, the Titans, you know, I've liked- what they've done. I think they provide a unique matchup for a lot of NFL offenses that have liked to spread out and, you know, maybe can't handle a a ferocious, like um, four man pass rush. uh, Like, you know, the, the Titans are able to provide when they drop seven into coverage. You know, we see a lot of teams now have to manufacture pressure through blitz, but like the Titans don't have to do that. And like, I like, you know, what Robinson's done in that regard, but like, the ceiling of the team is clear every single year Yeah, is that they take advantage of a weak division every year to, to win the division. You know, this is going to be their fourth year in a row winning the division. And then they're, they're like, they, their peak is the AFC championship game. Their best case scenario is that they make the AFC championship game and they lose by around double digits <laughs> like in 2019 uh to the Chiefs, right? And then the, the you know these past couple of years it's been getting into the playoffs, lose your first game and you're out. And like I think you know kind of like the the moves that he's made um especially with just Tannehill and Henry where you sign a not top 8 quarterback um who's probably out of the can take you to a Super Bowl tier in Tannehill to big extension, which is fine because he was doing well in your offense at times. But then you also like have the opportunity cost problem with Henry that we talked about last week, where you know the the teams are going to want to or the team is going to want to hand the ball off to him more often. So like I think Vrabel, you know, with the quarterback, um, a quarterback on maybe on a rookie deal or. Uh, a quarterback that is elite, you know, not on a rookie deal could do very, very well. And like, that's why you want to choose him over Robinson going forward because Robinson probably maxed out what he was able to do in Tennessee. Yeah. No,
0: I I think you hit the nail on the head with that. Um, I don't know what the Titans are going to do going forward, how they replace Robinson. Um, But again, I think with Rable, they have a chance in, in any season, especially with how weak the AFC South is projecting to be for the next couple of years even if trevor lawrence takes a step forward i did want to give some props to the eagles we did kind of speak in depth about this game on our friday show talked about how the titans weak point was their play action defense the eagles didn't necessarily exploit it i did find it telling that jalen hurts was 14 of 15 for 188 yards and one touchdown throwing over the middle Mm -hmm. in this game and that kind of does tie back into what we said that david long and it, it wasn't Zach Cunningham. I, I still forget his name. The other Titans middle linebacker. Those two are very good in run defense. I think they even showed up top 10 in um, Aaron Schatz's like, uh, percentage of snaps or percentage of plays like where a defensive player is like, accounting for mm-hmm. the end result. Both of them show up top 10 in run stats, but they're not that good in coverage. And I think the Eagles completely took advantage of that repeatedly targeted the middle of the field and that kind of that was the big like turning point for me about hurts is like he's finally attacking the most efficient part of the field and that that's again aj brown is not only providing surplus value for his stats like what he's doing as a receiver he's opening up the playbook he's allowing Hertz to progress as a passer, giving him the guy to throw to over the middle i think it was a very complete game plan uh from the titans or from the eagles and again i, I want to shout out our friend judah who hit an amazing same game parlay on this game reading this game perfectly that the Eagles were not going to run the ball because they are a smart team and understand the Titans will would probably be able to stop them, but repeatedly targeting the Titans corners who are the weak point of their defense.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree with everything that you said. I thought this was uh, Jalen Hurts' best game of the year, you know, 94th percentile EPA per play, 99th percentile total EPA, um, 14.2 completion percentage over expected. And like, yeah, like what you mentioned with, like what we were talking about with Judah as well, yards per carry on design rushes in this game, um, you know, between all rushers, including Jalen Hurts, but 8.5 yards per pass attempt, so it didn't matter. And, like, that's why I love this Eagles offense, because they can just win in so many different ways. It can be an A.J. Brown deep ball game, like we saw against the Steelers. It can be a Devontae Smith intermediate uh, game, like we saw, you know, somewhat in this game as well as an A.J. Brown game. There's games where they can just take advantage of really bad run defenses, like I think we might see when they play the Cowboys in a couple weeks. And, like, A.J. Brown has kind of changed his game from what he used to be in Tennessee, uh, especially on go routes, right? Like this year, seven receptions for 245 yards and four touchdowns on go routes just this season. Last year, Um, You know, in a full season, he had eight receptions for 119 yards and two touchdowns on go routes. And like the Titans receivers combined for three receptions and 35 yards and a touchdown in this game. And then Derrick Henry had negative 26 rushing yards over expected, um, you know, against uh, Eagles run defense that had been uh, being taken advantage of. Um, So, you know, this was just a very complete game from the Eagles. And this is what true high end contenders do. Is they blow out teams yeah, like this, exactly, um, and like that's why I feel more comfortable about them going forward than some of the other NFC contenders.
0: Yeah, I love that. And again, the the, cont- the to be like a elite team, I think it was proved by Football Outsiders sometime back. Like the real elite teams are the teams that not only have a great record but also blow out bad teams. So Eagles doing that definitely gives me a lot of hope for them going forward. And I mean, I've always had hope for them. I think this just uh, influences like what I think about their ceiling a lot more definitely feel great about this game going or about the team going forward. Um, let's move on to another, let's move on to the 4 PM slate. Let's start with dolphins Niners. Um, so what were your like kind of big takeaways from this game?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. From the game specifically, before we get it to the Jimmy Grappolo injury. Um, I mean, it It really starts with Tua versus you know, this, um, defense that, uh, of the 49ers that are built to stop the middle of the field, which like you said, was the most efficient area to pass. But like, I still think Dolphins receivers were open in this game. Um, it was, it was just two ahead an off day. And like those types of things happen, you know, us being both athletes that didn't play football, but played yeah. other sports. Like we understand like off days happen um, in, in like all sports and even in, in just life in general. And so like Tua had a 65% uh, accuracy rate of, you know, as charted by PFF when he was targeting open receivers coming into this game, that went down to 55% in this game in particular. So, you know, he was just missing open receivers and he only had three uh, intermediate level passes over the middle of the field, two incomplete with one broken up by Fred Warner, who's one of the five linebackers that matter. (laughs) And then another like um, the one in the complete pass was a 19 yard pass, but he basically wasn't able to target the middle of the field because of Fred Warner, because of Nick Bosa getting pressure and like this 49ers defense and Namiko Ryans and the way that they were able to, to stop the Mike McDaniel offense.
0: Yeah. The, you know, so Tua, I didn't think have a, had a good game at all. Um, I do feel, okay. I still feel okay about the dolphins offense though. Like, so I thought Tua was bad. But I thought McDaniel still called a really good game. It's like he was still scheming guys open. It's like Tua was just missing them. He missed them high. He missed them low. He had one on a wheel route, which should have been a walking touchdown he, that he overthrew. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not going to dunk on Tua because I know this is like one of the hardest matchups for any quarterback was missing both the starting tackles. And we don't really know from an outsider perspective that doesn't work for the team or a team, how that influences Mike McDaniel and his play calling. But Again, this was the whole thought process about what we talked about Tua in the in the past couple weeks. We don't really know Tua yet, and we kind of saw the limitations of him as a quarterback. We didn't really see him play good competition yet. Early in the season, he did, and he struggled a little bit. And we kind of saw that again this week. It could just be a blip in the radar, but I think this is like we're starting to see Tua regress a little bit. It's only been one game, but he is going to play a tougher slate of defenses to round out the year. He's gonna to have to face the Jet the Jets, the Bills, right? So I think this was kind of a good game to kind of like rein the uh, you know, horse back in on Tua. We got a Dolphins fans keep them in their place. And you know, Tua did drop from second in the MVP voting to about like I think it's 12 to 1 now. So I I think, you know, two to the Dolphins offense will be fine. They have an easy get right matchup versus the Chargers this week. Um but yeah I think there is some concern for Tua in the long term, based on games like this. Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I, I I can see why you would say that there's concern, but I think everything that, you know, why Tua played poorly in this game is fixable. Like all all the things Mm -hmm. that he did, you know, throws that he missed, especially like the, you know, inaccurate passes to open receivers is throws that we've seen him make in the past. It's not like he wasn't able to, Um, you know, make like super tight window throws or like his, his uh, lack of arm strength, like played a big role in this game where, you know, he had to fit the ball in between defenders because it goes such a grind. Like, like you said, like Mike McDaniel is going to still get receivers open for him. You know, he just has to make it happen. But you know, what I want to get to is if you're, if you're Kyle Shanahan, if you're John Lynch right now. Um, You know, with the Jimmy Garoppolo injury, which really stinks because I thought Jimmy Garoppolo was having, you know, even a better season uh, than he usually does and and was playing quarterback at a a pretty high level this year, despite what the film guys want to (laughs) say. What do you do exactly? Do you do you roll with Brock Purdy? Do you look for, you know, an outside option? Uh, What do you you, what's like kind of your mindset uh, going forward with this?
0: Yeah, I I would rock with Brock Purdy. I know uh, a lot of people were kind of campaigning for Baker Mayfield to be a part of this offense. I don't think Mayfield really fits this at all. The Niners offense is about timing, it's about making like backs, the throws, backside digs, being able to like re defense his pre snap. A lot of things that Baker isn't good at. Baker, you know, had a problem in his final year with the Browns, whether it was injury or whether it's just he's not good, struggled to hit dig routes, these like. These out routes where he would constantly overthrow them. And I don't think he would be a great fit for this 49ers offense. And the Rams did pick him up. Um, You know, we could discuss that in a later podcast or something. But um, what we saw is that the Niners did go a little bit conservative. Rock Purdy had an A dot of 5.6 in this game. Jimmy G's A dot uh, for the season is. Uh, 7.3 so they're definitely scaling the difficulty the uh, level of difficulty back but I did think Purdy made some throws in like situations where like the Niners needed a bucket he made a couple third down throws where he was hitting guys past the sticks um, but I think overall like they're gonna have to dumb down the offense a little bit gonna have to rely on you know McC- McCaffrey and this is like kind of where a You know, you want more of a committee at running back because you're probably going to have to rely on McCaffrey a lot more. And at this point in his career, he's just not capable of carrying or touching the ball 20, 25 times a game and having a backup like Elijah Mitchell would would be helpful. But I think Purdy's fine. He's obviously not that great of a quarterback, but he could be serviceable for them in in their hopes of like at least being in the play or being in the Super Bowl hunt when they eventually make the playoffs. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And like it's just a testament to the infrastructure that the 49ers have built where they're able to lose their, you know, starting quarterback that they wanted to, in you know, to start the year with in Trey Lance. They're able to use another starting quarterback um, who's having a good season, Jimmy Garoppolo, and still beat a pretty good team in the Dolphins um, by both sides of the ball, you know, doing well and just like these skill position players really just taking over. Um, You know, my, I think like something that I think gets mentioned a lot is oh like it's Kyle Shanahan like he'll he'll make it work with Brock Purdy and like I think it could work for for a couple of games but like no one has been able to really come close to the efficiency that Garoppolo has had in the 49ers offense since Shanahan has got there in 2017 so like for reference Jimmy Garoppolo 0.18 EPA per play um, since getting there in, you know, since Shanahan took over in 2017. Nick Mullins, positive 0.07. So zero, you know, a 10th lower than what Garoppolo was at. Trey Lance was negative 0.01. Brian Hoyer was negative 0.09. And CJ Bethard was negative 0.09. So, you know, it, I think Brock Purdy will probably fall around the, you know, Uh, Probably, you know, very close to zero um, on the efficiency wise, which would rank about, you know, 25th, 26th out of starting quarterbacks, which could work because, you know, the 49ers defense is that good, but you're not going to win playoff games with um, Brock Purdy. And like, I think of Jimmy G, you know, with the news about his injury, if he's ready to come back. Uh, in the divisional round maybe you do just win one singular playoff game with Purdy and then Jimmy G can come back but you also don't want to rush a player who you know isn't 100 percent. but I I think like the path with Purdy will kind of be looks good for a game or two Defense is key on his weaknesses and then he's not able to adapt because he's a seventh round pick yeah
0: it's it's really the Mike White thing again like he'll have one good game and then I think defenses will kind of figure him out you kind of listed off the EPA I would actually say Purdy is going to be a positive EPA quarterback. I know Hoyer and Bethard were terrible in terms of their EPA, but none of them had the infrastructure like you talked about. They don't have Ayuk playing at the best he's ever played at in his career. A healthy Devo, healthy Kittle, healthy Trent Williams. Jawan Jennings has kind of stepped up as that third receiver. Like Bethard and Hoyer were, were playing with a terrible Niners team that wound up picking second in, in the 2017 draft. Right, so um I think Por- I think Purdy would be fine. Will be fine and. Again, there's I know Shanahan would give a lot of thought for his game management decisions, but he is one of the better, if not you know, the smartest offensive mind in the NFL. So I I do feel fine about them going forward.
1: And what was interesting was Kyle Shanahan was more aggressive at the end of the half with Brock Purdy uh going for it on the fourth and seven, and yeah. just like kind of like the way he approached the end of the half as well than he was with Jimmy Garoppolo. So I don't know if that was just him saying like YOLO, like I'm playing with the third string quarterback, I might as well do whatever I want now. Um, while he wanted to play more in structure with Garoppolo, but maybe he does have some trust in uh in in uh Purdy that that like we don't know about, which I think could be really interesting.
0: Yeah, um just looking for that fourth down. Um do you remember? Yeah, no, it was the fourth and four. And Purdy, this is like typical rookie shit. He threw a, a, or I don't know if it was a typical rookie thing, but he did throw like a, a fade mm-hmm. on that play, which I don't like. I don't think that's right. Like third down, it's fine to have one of those arm punts. On fourth down, like you don't really want to be throwing that. Like you're trying to convert, right? Because mm-hmm. like if they bat it down, you lose all of that. Well, on third down, if they bat it down, like they're starting at the forty four, right? Yeah. So, um. You know, I think he can clean up his decision decision making, but yeah, that was a that was a pretty funny thing, especially with his back his third string quarterback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, let's move on to Chiefs Bengals. Um, you know we watched this game together. Uh it, it was a it was an interesting game. I thought the Bengals controlled the first half. Chiefs roared back as as normal. I think they were one Travis Kelsey fumble away from winning that game, and. At this point, like I don't even know what to say about the Bengals and Chiefs like matchup anymore. I think the Bengals just match up so well, but the Chiefs on both sides of the ball. You, you can't like the Chiefs really have no answer for Jamar Chase or any of the Chiefs receivers. And on offense, like Travis Kelsey, like I feel like sometimes he just gets negated by this Bengals defense with Jesse Bates, Von Bell, Dax Hill, Logan Wilson. Like the Bengals match up very well on both sides of the ball. And It's like our friend Eric Eager said, like the Bengals are going to be here for a while. Like I've come around on them. I've updated all my priors on the team as a whole, as Burrow as a quarterback. And I like, what do you, what do you think the fixes for the Chiefs? Like if they have to play the Bengals in the playoffs?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I think it starts, you know, I, I think Burrow deserves his credit. And like, I think we'll give that to him in a little bit, but like it, it, I'm more impressed with the Bengals defense versus the Chiefs offense than I am with the Bengals offense versus the Chiefs defense because Chiefs defense is not that good they played awful in this game they weren't able to get a pass rush they weren't able to cover their corners got cooked by uh, Chase and Higgins all game they couldn't stop Perrine you know the entire game as a rusher or receiver but from the Bengals defensive perspective um, again they rushed three on six of the Chiefs passing plays and only allowed one first down on those plays they forced three incompletions and then that crucial sack on third and three that backed it up to a fourth them uh 5 I think. Yeah. Um f- with 4 minutes to go where the Chiefs ended up missing the field goal was massive. They generated 17 total pressures with 9 of them happening under 2.5 seconds and they had five coverage sacks um as 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 charted by PFF. And so I think the fix has to be you have to lean into your heavier personnel against this team and use if you're going to roll out with 12 personnel let's say you use one of those um one of those tight ends as a blocker to start the play that can end up becoming a receiver, uh, you know, short enough for Mahomes to find him and take advantage of, you know, a, a, a defensive secondary that might run backwards with all the other receivers, mm-hmm. or you go into your thirteen personnel sets where you can have a tight end on either side and really, you know, help your offensive line that is, you know, has really been kind of like dominated by this Bengals defensive line. I would like, you know, Andy Reid to get into his heavier personnels, um, either, you know, with a, a running back in the backfield to help Mahomes as a, you know, extra blocker, or you know, tight ends as extra blockers that can end up becoming receivers on plays when the Bengals drop everyone back because there is there is a way to take advantage of the drop eight um you know when you can't run the ball like the chiefs can and that's with these like sh- you know later developing routes um you know a- as the play goes on and like there's a higher time to throw but the chiefs just haven't done that yet um and so I-, I think that's something they can do if they rematch again in the playoffs.
0: Yeah the yeah that's a great point and the drop eight stuff is why I also wanted to bring up like Mahomes rushing that was something you talked about, you know, in one of your articles on PFF, nine rushing yards after four straight games of at least 23 yards. And Mahomes has had 21 or more rushing yards in, or he had it in eight of his last nine games before the Bengals game. And that's the thing that like has really pushed the Chiefs and made them like a good offense for years. It's like when Mahomes needs to get yards, like and the team start manning up on the Chiefs, like he can use his legs. But the Bengals didn't really allow him to do that. There were times where they just rushed three and, like you said, the drop eight. And one of them was just spying Mahomes because Mahomes will make you pay with his legs. And while he had that amazing Superman dive in the end zone, I think his legs were largely non-existent for most of the game. And ultimately, I think you know, Lou Anarumo, we, we've given credit to Zach Taylor for like adjusting his scheme. I think Lou Anna Rumo is like probably like the coach that deserves the most credit on the Bengals. His you know, losing Chido Wizzy is huge, but he still managed to have a great game plan against the Chiefs, which consisted of just varying his coverages. He had six snaps of cover zero, 11 of cover one, seven snaps of cover two, 11 of cover three, eight snaps in quarters and three snaps of cover six. So he he gave Mahomes, he mixed up his looks, he, he ran drop eight, he trusted Hendrickson and Hubbard to get home, which they did multiple times. And I thought it was a great defensive performance. And now the Bengals like I think you have to take them seriously after beating two playoff teams back to back one on the road and and one where, you know, the Chiefs kind of had, you know, we're were kind of I, I would say the better team coming into this game. But I think I would be a little bit scared of the Bengals now if I had to play them in the playoffs. And on the other side of the ball, the Chiefs ran eight snaps of bracket coverage in this game, and they still couldn't didn't really have an answer for Joe Burrow and this Bengals offense. So we we've kind of seen the Bengals' offense at full strength for for weeks in this season, not like consistently, but. I think they're starting to put it, up, put it all together and, you know, they're trending towards being, I would say, the third best team in the AFC right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I do want to give credit to Joe Burrow. You know, I think one of the reasons I was lower on him than most people was one, because like I didn't care about his swag like everyone else does, especially the NFL Twitter account, which put out 10 tweets changing his nameplate to just different nicknames, which I thought was really weird for an official Twitter account to do. But I regress um, from just a play level perspective. I was worried about his sack, um, you know, his ability to uh, take so many sacks um, being something that stuck with him throughout his career, because we see that with basically every other quarterback in the league, sack rate or pressure rate or time to throw, which leads to sack rate is something that's so stable. We've seen it travel with Carson Wentz, no matter what team he's on, uh, just to name an example. But Burrow's, you know, pressure to sack rate has gotten so much better this season. And like, that's why I am wrong about him is because I thought that would be something that would be consistent with him, but it isn't. And then, you know, another thing, you know, that has gotten better with him is his ability to actually take his checkdowns and i think you yeah. know not having Nixon on the field is a really good thing it's a plus. for the yeah for the plus Bengals EPA. right now and like since week 8 they ranked 3rd in EPA per rush when they couldn't run the ball last year and they couldn't run the ball at the beginning of the season this year so that's also now you can't just stick in cover 2 the entire game against them like we saw it was a problem for the Bengals um you know at at the beginning of the season when they were in their slump and like, that's why they've been able to take advantage of single high coverages now, because you have to dedicate an extra man yeah. in the box because of what Perrine provides. And like, I think Perrine was the MVP of this game, you know, as much as um, people want to give it to other other teams, like just what he was able to do as a rusher, as a receiving back and like how he manipulated defenses, you know, he was spectacular in this game. I don't know if that's something that stays consistent, yeah. but like he can really take advantage of this Chiefs defense that's weak in a lot of the areas that the Bengals are strong in. Yeah, I mean,
0: we talked about it last week, how Piran should be the 1B to Mixon 1A when he comes back. I mean, at this point, I would make Piran 1A compared to Mixon 1B. And yeah, I think, you know, Mina also tweeted how uh, Bengals from Weeks 7 through 13 have ranked uh, number one in EPA versus Cover 2. You know, we love Mina. You know, I think part of that is playing the Falcons without AJ Terrell and Casey Hayward and Burrow going for 404 touchdowns against some practice squad guys but you know i digress um bengals you know we've given them their flowers for the last couple weeks of the season and we're at that point where we have to start you know taking them serious and again we've we've always never been scared to have our takes but we're always okay with you know um not doubling down and we've kind of come around on, on certain players and teams that we didn't necessarily think too highly of before um I think the last game, I I didn't want to talk too much about it because it was a really bad game. But Saints Bucks, um, you know, Tom Brady's still struggling versus Dennis Allen. And in typical, Tom Fashion gets a 45 yard DPI that changes the the game completely. Um, But even before that DPI, that shouldn't have even happened because Dennis Allen on fourth and one from the plus 47 or plus 44 decided to punt it away instead of go for it, right? Why the hell are you paying Taysom Hill money if you're not going to use him in these short yardage situations? I don't get it. Like I just, I, Dennis Allen is a great defensive mind. He hasn't done anything smart analytically. He has zero fourth down goes on on um on uh, plays where Ben Baldwin's bot shows there's a one percent edge to go for it. He's gone for it zero times. Like I don't, I I don't know what is going on in New Orleans, but even more than Dennis Allen's defense, I think it was the game management that cost the Saints.
1: Mm -hmm. It was just a total meltdown because... You know, when you're up sixteen to three, with you know just six minutes to go, all Mark Ingram had to do was get the first down without going out of bounds. He could have either stayed in bounds and let the clock run, and the Bucks probably would have ran out of time at the end of the game, or he could have reached out and got the yeah. first down. It still would still have been okay to go out of bounds because you still would have got in, uh, you know, the the first, and you would have had a new set of downs to drain clock there. But he he went out of bounds. You know, they ended up not converting, had to had to punt, like you mentioned. And then, yeah, the the Bucks went down twice in a row and scored. And you know, it's just like it's the same thing, you know, every time with Brady. I we try to be objective on this podcast, but like you know, I've I've made it pretty clear on Twitter that Brady's not my favorite player in the league <laughs> by any means. Um, you know, based on <laughs> who we go to school with, you know, how so many people here are Brady fans for no reason, despite be, just happening to be at the same school twenty five years after he went to that school. Um, so you know it's it's just really annoying to see you know kind of this division just fall apart while Brady's been there uh and then while the AFC East just like suddenly every single team just jumps up to levels that they never reached yeah. when Brady was there it's just kind of like how how things work with him you know happy for him like this is all he has left like he doesn't have like other <laughs> other things in his life sorry that fouls does mean but you know I'm, I'm glad like you know the six and six bucks basically wrapped up their division uh already um and and like they'll you know host home playoff game uh in in, in a couple
0: weeks here yeah i mean even aside from that todd bowles punting the ball 20 yards on fourth and seven down 13 that should have been the game and except dennis allen decided to you know ruin ruin that game and, and give you know tom brady that win you, you know what's even worse we could have had a chance to push our Saints over three division wins, and because of Dennis Allen, we lose that bet. I'm like, it's just so annoying. That game should have been won by the Saints, were complete the completely better team. Um, but you know, we move on. The Saint, it just wasn't the Saints' year. Um, so yeah, that was that was our game reviews for week thirteen. Uh, we'll move on to our who was him and letdown segment. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly.
1: You are not him. You are not him. I told a bitch I'm him, quick play. Trying to ride with a boss, what bitch get in. Trying to stay on the road like the Michelin man. Oh, Put an oh, M on your head like a oh. Michigan fan. All right, so we can start off with our Who Is Him awards here. Um, three players or coaches from the past weekend we thought really stood out. And, you know, I have to start with Lions offensive coordinator, Ben Johnson. I'm supposed to keep him a secret, not supposed to talk about him because I don't want him to get hired. Uh, But, you know, I don't know if we have any high ranking executives listen to this podcast. So, you know, I'll just talk about him here. You know, he, Jared Goff is not a good quarterback. He's not a bad quarterback. He's kind of in the middle, but like. Uh, Ben Johnson is such a good play caller that he has his offense performing at such a high level. The Lions have the most diverse run game in the NFL. You know, they're really utilizing their top five offensive line to its best ability, which is run blocking. Um, And, you know, they can really run everything under the sun and they do. Sixth offensive linemen, you know, tight ends. Uh, in, in motion to to seal backsides on on run plays. And then just getting Amon Ross St. Brown, who's the best player on your team, you know, the, the ball in space and you lose TJ Hawkinson midseason, but you can still make up with it with Brock Wright. Like Ben Johnson's just doing a phenomenal job calling plays for the Lions right now as they continue to roll and, you know, didn't even have a single punt in this game against the, the Jaguars and like it's very impressive performances week in and week out from him.
0: Yeah. Now I know how you kind of mentioned to me, mentioned him to me over the summer and got me really excited for the Lions team. And I think he's been putting on a show week in and week out for the Lions. Um, I'm also going to go with the coordinator. I'm going to D'Amico Ryans um, forcing the number one offense in the league for EPA per play with the number one quarterback in the league per EPA per play, not the number one quarterback in the league overall um, to have a negative 0.31 EPA per drop back, um, you know, Part of, we talked about how that game was partly Tua just being a little bit off, but you can't just like fully just uh, attribute that game to the you know Tua's bad uh, accuracy. Part of that is also the Niners' game plan, how Ryan's kind of forced Tua into these like un- uncomfortable situations. And again, like while Tua had a bad day, I think Ryan's did a good job getting pressure. He even without the starting tackles, he made sure to utilize stunts and twists at a high rate, where we saw Nick Bosa, you know, kind of coming off free off the edge through the middle, through the a gap. And I think, you know, Ryan's deserves a lot of credit for that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know what the group chat tried to do for Brian Leftwich last year we're going to do for Demico Ryan's this soft season. He needs to be a head coach somewhere um, ne- to my next, who was him, uh, Devante Adams. Uh, you know, we've, I think we've given a bunch of awards to him almost. throughout this year, but like, again, he deserves it again because uh, 185 receiving yards uh, against your chargers, um two two receiving touchdowns, you know, just providing an explosive element to this offense that they've been lacking since you know Henry Ruggs has has left the team. Um, and like it's just been you know super impressive he's just kind of stepped in and gone back to old Devontae Adams and like the Raiders offense is always ranked you know high, above average this year in e-paper play and they were just getting really unlucky in one score losses you know they're five and seven right now they're six point uh, favorites against the Rams on Thursday night this week like they're about to be six and seven yeah. they just had their game get flexed against the Patriots you know that might be for a playoff spot like the Raiders are, are really coming together and I think it's because of Derek to Devontae Adams but Devontae Adams deserves a lot of that Credit for you know kind of carrying that connection right now,
0: yeah. I I think people have kind of like only limited and limited uh, limited themselves to Tyreek and Jefferson being the top two, and just forgetting about Devontae Adams because he plays on a shit team or he was not a shit team. He was playing on a bad team that with a bad record. But yeah, he's been the Raiders' best weapon for weeks now, and it's been really cool to see him succeed outside of Green Bay. um I'm gonna go with my guy, typical Geno Smith. Um, you know, lost in the sauce of the four o'clock games. Gino threw for 367 yards, three touchdowns um, and a 0.28 e-paper play on the road versus a divisional opponent. Like, I don't even know what we're going to th- say about him in the offseason, but Gino is playing like a top 10 quarterback right now. Like, I'm fine saying that. And I, I've just been really cool to see his ascension. And our friend Steven Ruiz was on this, you know, in the summer, in the preseason. Like, got to give props to Steven for that. And I think juno has been great. It's just been really fun watching him play.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it has been awesome. He just throws seeds like all the time. Yeah. Like it's crazy. Um, you know, even though his numbers have kind of gone down the second half of the season, I still like watching him a lot and think he's doing a great job. Uh, my last him award needs to go to Tony Pollard. Um, you know, just so many Cowboys fans, national analysts think that his efficiency is going to go down as his volume goes up. But, you know, 51.4 rushing yards over expected this past week, the most of any running back by a decent margin, Uh, two touchdowns, uh, you know, just, just an overall like great running back. He can, you know, just, he's done so many things for this Cowboys offense. And, you know, I, I, I think Zeke has looked better in these last two weeks, but Pollard should get 60, 70% of the carries and Zeke should fill in uh, when needed instead of the other way around.
0: Yeah, no, I love Pollard. Uh, I've kind of tweeted about how he's broken the volume goes up, efficiency goes down type of thing. So love that. I'm going to go with Brock Purdy just because, I mean, stepping in in that like hostile of a game um, you know, against one of the, the, I would say the toughest defenses for a um a young quarterback to play against the Miami, like just a lot cover zero, a lot of mugs, sim pressure looks. And for him to like average 0.1 EP per play, like not lose the Niners the game. Um, I thought, I thought that was pretty impressive. And again, we've, we tied a conversation on this, on this episode about Purdy going forward, but in this game alone, um, I thought he did enough, which I was not expecting when I saw a Jimmy get carted to the locker room.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no, I love that a uh, 49ers. I mean, very well deserved after this past week from you, uh, let's transition to our letdowns now, which is good players and coaches from the past weekend who disappointed. And I have to, you know, I, we haven't talked about Robert Woods. Uh, At all on the show, I think the entire year and kind of for good reason, you know, uh, Robert Woods had five targets, um, you know, against the uh, against the Eagles and only caught one of them for six receiving yards. I think he's been really, really bad, you know, this entire season and like he's just not like a true wide receiver one. uh, I don't even know if he's a wide receiver. Two at this point, you know, I really liked Robert Woods in LA. I think the injury and just kind of like age kind of has got to him now to this point. And like, you know, we, when we go back to like the Robinson situation and like why he might've got fired, you know, I think this, like p- putting a lot of stock in Robinson to kind of, or Robert Woods to kind of fill, uh, the AJ Brown hole, you know, was, was, might've been like one of the the dominoes to fall for him. And like, it's just not been pretty for him at all this season in in Tennessee.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's tough to really buy into a guy coming up an ACL injury but it seems like the titans tried to buy low and it's just low risk but the reward just hasn't been there at all um i'm going to go with matt patricia or joe judge i know we said good coaches but that game plan against the bills was something else and you could visibly see mac jones screaming at whoever he was screaming at we didn't get to see the the face just like stop throwing, stop running quick game. Like let's let's throw the damn ball. Like the the Patriots have a good offensive line. They got David Andrews back, and yet they were still resorting to these quick slants that the Bills are ready for. So we talked early in the season about how Patricia and Judge were actually doing like a decent job. But I think everything has just gone off the rails. And again, it's it's like it's not like it was it wasn't predictable mm-hmm. by the end of the season. And. It's just kind of been a nightmarish type of offensive, you know, trend for the for the Patriots.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. And like, you know, this is kind of what Patricia does. Um, you know, it can it can look pretty for six weeks. Like his first year of the line started three and three. Um and you know just Fell apart and like then the next year after that they started two zero and one and fell apart. So it's it's kind of what he does. It's it's like you know what what we've seen from him so many times. Um, but I'm I'm glad you know you mentioned him there and you know that that's all we have for for this show. You know, hope everyone enjoyed you know kind of reviewing these week thirteen games. So I actually won't be on the the preview episode next week. I will be traveling and and won't be able to um to to come on the show. So Arjun is going to be doing a special episode with our friend Drew Fortgang to So be on the lookout for that. That'll come out at the normal time. So that should be a lot of fun. Appreciate everyone listening until next time. I'll take the points.